it's all true. <laughs> uh, so my work spans from large-scale uh, installations to very personal performances and conceptual work. This is Light Leaks, where I worked with Jonas Jongjan to project onto 50 disco balls and map every single reflection of light. I've also worked with composer Annie Lewandowski to create sound installations uh, draped in recovered fishing gear. We use machine learning to generate lighting design that reveals the complex patterns in the songs of humpback whales, uh, drawing attention to hundreds of thousands of whales that are killed by fishing gear each year. Um, I'm the, uh, well, besides my artwork, uh, I also work as a technical and creative consultant. Uh, for example, I helped uh, Google build AI-powered instruments, music videos, and visualizations. Uh, but for over a year, I've been researching the ecological impact of the Ethereum network. So I'm sort of the token critic here to legitimize the rest of the session. <laughs> uh, Ethereum is one network that allows artists to sell these certificates of authenticity uh, or certificates of ownership, which are called non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Ethereum is similar to Bitcoin in that it relies on this technique called proof of work, which uses a large amount of power. Uh, it's not energy hungry because it's complicated or because it's useful. Uh, proof of work is just a process for generating lots of random numbers very quickly. And it's only energy hungry because the price of the currency is tied to the cost of the wasted electricity. So the network is powered by people called miners um, that waste energy in exchange for cryptocurrency, basically. Uh, if the price of Ethereum goes up, uh, the miners will waste more energy. And if it goes down, then they'll turn off some portion of the 10 million computers which are currently powering the network. Most computational processes can be made more efficient with uh, faster hardware or better algorithms, but not Ethereum or Bitcoin. So as an artist deciding whether I wanted to work with NFTs or not, uh, I looked for reliable numbers on the energy use, but I couldn't find any. So I did my own research and I spoke with experts and I wrote an article about what I learned. Some people told me this would be too difficult, uh, but I wanted to show that even though these systems seem complicated, with some care, we can kind of disentangle and understand them better. I found that right now, Ethereum uses around 22 terawatt or ter trillion watt hours per year. Uh, the entire internet uses about 100 terawatt hours per year. So Ethereum uses more than one fifth of the power of the entire internet. And that's more than a small country like Iceland. Uh, at, this is also the same as all of Facebook and Google combined, but every second, Google is answering over 50,000 searches and playing over 50,000 YouTube videos. Uh, can you guess how many transactions Ethereum is processing in, in one second? It's about 15. <laughs> uh, this is not renewable energy, and the emissions are kind of like running multiple coal power plants constantly, 24-7, every day. Uh, in total, the emissions are similar to about um, 900,000 people in Europe, so kind of like Copenhagen and Malmö combined. The scale of the electricity used by proof-of-work is forcing countries everywhere from Kazakhstan to Canada to put restrictions on crypto and proof-of-work. 
last year, some government officials here in Sweden even called for an end to proof of work across Europe because it represents what they said a threat to the climate transition. Fortunately, in a little less than a month, on September 15th, Ethereum is scheduled to finally move away from proof of work after six years. Uh, but even when that transition happens, I want to ask, you know, when tech sort of moves fast and breaks things, who picks up the pieces after? When the industry moves on, why are the rest of us left with this mess, with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, with a warming planet, uh, with rising seas, with mountains of old GPUs? And this really isn't sustainable, and I think we need to reimagine how tech is built and how, how we hold it accountable. Part of the question is, who do we hold accountable? And some people really like to focus on individual action in the climate space. And of course, it's really important uh, to ask what we can do personally uh, every day. But historically, over-focusing on individual action has been a deflection from corporate responsibility. So this idea of like a personal carbon footprint uh, was actually invented uh, for the oil company, BP, by the advertising firm, uh, Ogilvy in 2005, the entire concept of the carbon footprint was designed to deflect responsibility away from BP as a company and onto us as individuals. So in the case of Ethereum, instead of blaming artists, you know, I'm not here to point fingers at anyone who's trying to make some money to support themselves. Um, I think we should look at the organizations making the most profit, including the NFT marketplaces like OpenSea and Rarible or Foundation, um, which each take a 5% cut of every sale. <laughs> and they've been really hesitant to engage with some of the lower energy alternatives to Ethereum. So in my latest work titled Amends, I created a series of sculptures uh, each designed to mitigate emissions from these NFT marketplaces. There's one sculpture per marketplace, uh, each one minted as an NFT, and the price is set at the cost of mitigating the emissions for that marketplace. Uh, right now, the total cost to mitigate emissions across all three marketplaces is over $23 million for over 1 million tons of carbon dioxide. And amends will go on sale when Ethereum transitions away from proof of work uh, in about a month. And if the work sells, then 100% of the profit will be split between three carbon mitigation companies that I've partnered with, um, each using different approaches to greenhouse gas removal and reduction. Um, so if you know anything about the climate, you might have gotten a little suspicious there, um, because historically, carbon offsets have been abused by the biggest polluters to avoid making reductions. And many carbon offsets don't even do what they claim to do. They might be sold by some random guy who says, you know, he's, he's going to chop down a forest, but if you pay him, then he won't chop it down, even though he was never really planning on chopping it down. They might be sold by a corrupt government official uh, who pockets most of the cash and then uses the leftovers to plant invasive monoculture trees that destroy the local ecosystem and economy. Um, and then maybe that forest just burns down a few years later, like they've been burning down in California. But there's also really essential work happening in this space, and I want to share the work of three partners behind Amends. Uh, Nori is working with farmers who practice regenerative agriculture. Uh, by making key changes to the way that they farm, they can sink more carbon dioxide into the soil 
and this is a benefit for the climate, uh, but it's also a benefit for the soil uh, and for our health. So by using these cover crops and no-till farming, uh, they can keep the soil microbes healthy throughout the year, which increases the nutrients available to the plants. And these techniques also promote a kind of resilience, partially by decreasing reliance upon um, inorganic chemical inputs. Um, and there's some new science here that's still being discovered, but overall this approach is fairly ancient and known to most indigenous peoples, for example. Project Vesta is researching an experimental process called enhanced coastal weathering. So on some beaches around the world, there's this green sand called olivine. And when the ocean waves crash on these beaches, the olivine is chemically converted into something called bicarbonate, which is used by marine creatures to build up their shells and skeletons. And this process captures carbon dioxide, which also reduces the acidity of the water. And it turns out while there's only a few beaches around the world that have this green sand, olivine is actually the most abundant mineral in the Earth's upper mantle. So Project Vesta is researching whether this natural process can be scaled up to capture a significant portion of historical carbon dioxide emissions while also deacidifying the oceans. Trade water is dealing with a different kind of historical debt from Ethereum. Um, so old air conditioning systems, like those in old cars, uh, they relied on these refrigerants like Freon. Uh, and when these gases escape into the atmosphere, they cause about 10,000 times more warming than carbon dioxide equivalent. So even though the worst of these gases were banned decades ago, these canisters are actually still sitting in warehouses and garages all over the world and slowly rusting through as they weather and then leaking into the atmosphere. And uh, trade water basically finds and destroys these canisters before they have a chance to leak. Each of these companies is doing really essential work, you know, healing the soil, laying groundwork for future carbon removal, uh, and managing dangerous gases. Uh, and ideally, we'd be able to fund their work even when we aren't trying to like, offset emissions elsewhere. And that does happen sometimes. So for example, Tradewater told me about a tech company that purchases 30x offsets on all of their emissions. And I think we could use a lot more of that. If amends doesn't sell, then I see it as kind of remaining as a monument to the inaction of the crypto ecosystem. But even if it does sell, I'm still a little cautious of NFTs and Web3 for a few reasons I'll mention briefly. So um, for one, uh, the rate at which most NFTs are flipped, kind of retraded, indicates that they're mostly being purchased as financial instruments, similar to how the contemporary art market works. And this encourages collectors to engage with art as a kind of casino-style game. It reduces art to its monetary value and artists to money printers. Uh, there are also things that are genuinely important for digital arts that some people think NFTs solve, but in reality, they do not. So uh, NFTs are promoted as a solution for archiving media, for example. But when you sell your artwork on an NFT marketplace, the only thing that's archived on the blockchain is the transaction history. It's like a receipt. Uh, the media itself is stored on a separate server almost all the time uh, in a way that may not or may or may not one day disappear. NFTs are also promoted as a solution for enforcing resale royalties, but in fact, they do not and cannot enforce resale royalties. 
They're promoted as a solution for verifying authenticity, but in fact, fakes are everywhere. The entire ecosystem uh, is designed on principles of deregulation. So there's nothing stopping a scammer from downloading anyone's digital art and selling it as if they were that person. Many artists I know personally have just wasted their time fighting marketplaces, trying to get their own artwork removed from the artwork because it's being sold without their consent. And because the entire concept of the blockchain is that changes should be immutable and irreversible, there are no undos. Uh, even when a marketplace decides to delist a stolen artwork or fake artwork, uh, the NFT remains and it can still be sold on other platforms and marketplaces. For me, one of the biggest concerns is that the entire crypto ecosystem kind of decenters people. So on Web 2.0, at least we were like users. Uh, but with crypto, we're just wallets. This means that if we want to build systems that redistribute wealth to people or systems that allow people to vote, we don't really have the concept of people to work with. We can only redistribute wealth to wallets or let wallets vote with money. And we've, we've been told this moment represents a major change, that we're going to see a decentralization of finance that radically favors individuals over corporate interests, and that this should help solve some of the biggest challenges we face today, maybe. Um, and yet, the two biggest blockchain ecosystems, Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, have relied on this massively polluting technology that can only create new currency proportional to how much energy it uses. And they've also seen buy-in from the same venture capitalists who brought us the web infrastructure we're already using. It's maybe less decentralization and more like recentralization. None of this is simple, <laughs> and we have to talk through it, I think, um, which is why I'm really happy to be here and in conversation with both Penny and Mikkel. Um, and uh, it's also why I've been running a series of group therapy sessions <laughs> to discuss our feelings about and experiences with crypto and NFTs. Um, this was at Stripe Festival in Eindhoven earlier this year. Uh, we need space, I think, to share our confusion and our excitement, our frustration, our financial anxiety, you know, our changing friendships. You know, when suddenly you find out that one of your friends is way wealthier than you, um, or maybe they have very different values than you do. Uh, I, if this is going to be a moment of change, then this is the change that I want to see. I, I, I want to see like a reorientation towards healing the environment and healing ourselves. And I want to see a reliance on each other through mutual aid instead of a reliance on markets and wealthy donors. And I want to see tech that's built by the people who are most impacted in a way that's truly accountable instead of being built by developers and visionaries that sort of walk away from the mess and the broken pieces of all their utopian dreams. Thank you. Thank you, Kai. <laughs> cool, thank you. And we even have time for Q&A. That's great. We have Monin over here. Monin? Okay, and then there's a question. We have a question down here in the middle aisle towards the end. And when you ask a question, just brief name and affiliation and then the question mark. Hi, 
Um, thanks for the speeches. Um, very cool, very interesting. Um, I'm Max, um, and I just wanted to ask Kyle, um, just for the last one, with regards to Ethereum, you just mentioned already uh, the energy consumption going to be reduced highly. And I was just wondering, you didn't really mention it, is it then still a problem? Like when it's uh, decreased that amount, it seems to be solved. It sounds like it seems to be solved with regards to the energy issue. Yeah, I think the energy use of Ethereum will be solved in a month. Um, I think the historical debt is still a big question, and that's what I'd like to focus on. We have kind of the same question for the climate broadly. There's a lot of changes that are being made right now, but we still have 200 years of emissions in the atmosphere that we have to deal with that are still actively influencing our planet negatively. So, um, yes, it will be solved. When, they, when you see a number like 99.9% reductions, I believe that's accurate. Okay, I will just also say to you, if you at any point someone gets a question, you can just jump in and answer, otherwise we just continue. I think there was someone down here and then up there afterwards, but for, up there, okay. You are, you are she knows. Hi, I'm Sorrel. I actually work in a DAO. Uh, so there's a platform called Color Studios, which is a music showcasing platform, and they've kind of been thinking about the next phase of that and gone into community and also fused that with Web3. And... So I, within this DAO, I've been working for six months and the project has existed for about a year and I've been thinking a lot about kind of the sizes at which these groups exist and kind of like what is a good size for a DAO when it gets too much, um, kind of splitting things into sub-DAOs. So maybe Penny, for you, just a question from your experience um, of what you think kind of these cycles look like in regards to size and also in regards to maybe phases where you have a lot of activity and contribution, then phases where you maybe slow down a bit and regroup again. So yeah, those have been kind of things on my mind as I've been tracking the changes and seeing uh, different things there. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also super important, especially, well, within actually any kind of community technology would be the scalability and how many you know, how many people are inside that room. And this is not a new problem in terms of emergent technologies. We also have these, like, within commune systems, uh, plenum, I'm based in Berlin, so the plenum is like the historical fatigue syndrome. Um, what I think is really important is, maybe I didn't explain it so much, but it's this idea of microgridding. So that means instead of trying to have one DAO that encompasses absolutely everything and is in this kind of constant overflow of information, and it's not even possible to understand when those periods are that you spoke of, of voting and so forth, I would say that smaller communities that are connected to each other, maybe biannually, triannually, works really well. That can also be translocally as well, so not um, offering kind of interoperability for a universal system, but also noting the infinite differences between localities and thinking very much about the notion that one size does not fit all. And what I would say is that probably what you need to do in terms of how big that group is, is constantly question that. You know, create space to speak about that. You know, are you humanly, socially, emotionally feeling overwhelmed by the capacity that you have to 
um, organize or um, invest within decision-making and consensus-making and building. What I would also say is potentially to work with the, your community uh, within the DAO, not necessarily only for proposal-making or organization systems. How do you think about offline space? You know, a lot of things are actually run through social spaces, not necessarily about always committing to structured um, references. And the other thing that I wanted to speak to is about how we use the moon cycle. Um, I would also think about how nature works, you know, that there is often this time of harvesting, there's this time of hibernation, you know, there's a time of activation. You know, we, um, and I think this was actually very beautifully spoke about in this morning's keynotes, but we actually do work two systems, you know, um, that are within our ecologies and maybe trying to bring some of those systems into how you organize and how you participate together can also because we're affected by it right you know in summer we feel very different to in winter and i think taking into account the complexity of where you're organizing from is really important in successfully thinking about social technologies beautiful answer um, Monin, you are down there. We could take one question here and then was up in the front afterwards. I left you. Um, hi, my name is Halibi. I work for a public sector organization here in Skåne looking at innovation within the film and audiovisual industries. My question is also for Europe Penny. Um, I'm wondering. In your experience with the DAO, have you been able to engage any public sector organizations or stakeholders since there is a lot of public funding for the arts? Yeah, I mean, that's actually kind of the whole um, premise <laughs> of the asylum stakeholders is specifically to hold those people accountable. Is um, it and actually, um, I borrowed this idea uh, from speaking to this amazing organization that's um, active within the US called WAGE and um, speaking to Lisa who's been like infinitely putting energy and power into this organization over the years. Um, she kind of dropped to me that it's about holding people accountable but through subtle ways and systems. So, you know, what I think about through DAOs is they're not perfect. There's a little dirty edges, there's grimy parts of them as well. And I may be a bit of a grimy thinker because I think that, you know, at this point, I cannot be utopic. I have to also sort of work at times within potentially things that my earlier self would reject. And so, the way Black Swan works is that basically those public organizations can actually advertise or um, lay claim to the fact that they're involved with this DAO, which means that they're signaling social, ethical, and political responsibilities to the scene, and also that they're signaling to each other who's actually interested in those systems. And what is also really important in terms of Black Swan specifically as a DAO is that um, within 
particularly public um, grant systems and public resources, quite often the people who are deciding what those resources and who's given them actually don't often interface with contemporary, emerging, new, radical forms of art making. It's not really on their um, landscape um, or on their horizon. And so often those most radical projects, they don't actually get funded until, as I said before, they get skimmed off the top. So this was also something that I specifically went to those institutions and explained that actually the people who are present, these new emerging generations, you're not actually interfacing or connecting to them, but you could if you would work through this DAO and also then there was kind of links. So you have to, I think, um, show the positive sides and speaking of the positive sides and the griminess of that, what I also want to say is that, you know, as well, that can be social signaling, which isn't necessarily a change of thinking. Um, and also what it does is it also allows the, particularly, let's say, in Berlin, because that's where this is positioned, it actually will create a stronger, um, more diverse system within the arts, which inevitably will create a stronger market for Berlin artists, you know, because I do think that art is part of the market. And so there is like this kind of, yeah, weighing up and down of those things. Cool, thank you. I think we have a question down here in the front. Hi, I'm Julie, and I'm a designer, interaction designer by training. I was just wondering, I can tell that you're all Ethereum people. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of the holy trinity of blockchains, where you talk about security, scalability, and decentralization, now with Ethereum's move away from proof of work, it seems like they're actually jeopardizing security to cater to the need for scalability, right? And they seem also to steer away from decentralization in the likes towards centralization with the Ethereum Alliance as well, right? In opposition, you have Bitcoin that actually just solely focus on security and decentralization, which is the first time in the history of society we've actually seen those two combined into a monetary system and a store of value. So my question is, there seems to be a risk with Ethereum, for instance, and crypto blockchains. For me, there's Bitcoin, and then there's crypto blockchains. There seems to be a risk that we can see a rise of new monopolies on the likes of Ethereum, and there could also be a complete rock pull of the whole foundation, right? Whereas Bitcoin has established as a protocol, as a layer one, where on layer two have built the likes of Lightning Network that can then scale the velocity and speed of transaction. So is that a concern of yours in your work, in your art, in your research, perhaps even in your, in your conviction and where you've sort of placed your focus, which is Ethereum? Um, I, I'm not actually sure that it's a solving um, that, it, that, that it's uh, in terms of scalability does anything different. I think it has the same problems of scalability after proof of uh, stake, actually. But it, it is an interesting point that that uh, moving from proof of work to proof of stake, you might have whales getting more power in the sense that they just have a lot of money that they stake and then they can sort of trick. But I still think that personally that the the market cap total of Ethereum is so large now that you'd, you'd, you'd have to have so much money, I guess, to have any kind of um, uh, wrong influence on 
on how the process works. At least that's how I understand it. I, th <laughs> I think for me, the question is not so much how things fail, but how they recover. Um, and I see a lot of good recoveries in society more broadly when it comes to monetary systems and financial systems. Uh, there's lots of failure as well, but I think the recoveries work better. Whereas when crypto crashes, when there's a new vulnerability, when there is a real attack, um, it's really just gone. You know, it's done. <laughs> uh, and that's more concerning for me. I, it's, it is good to remember, you know, if you're looking at all the transaction volume across crypto, a significant portion, maybe a third of it, is already on proof-of-stake networks. So I think practically there should be some, you know, resting of concerns for now about whether that really works or not. Um, theoretically, yeah, you're right. You know, the, the theoretical justification or theoretical guarantee is not there as much. Um, but yeah, my concern is a little bit less about whether it's theoretically going to work or even whether it's practically going to work, but more like what happens when it fails. You know, all the people who are going to lose their money if there is a failure, like there's no protections there. So that's my bigger concern. Thank you. I, I, you, I will, so I, I said I will <laughs> leave you with more questions and this is where I'm going to hold up to that promise because we are ending with time now.